Marini's Media. Totally Football Show Summer Special. What a 24 hours in the Champions League. Friday, Bayern get Lionel Messi. Saturday, City get Messi with Lyon. We look back on the thrills, the spills and the Dembele aches of this quarterfinal and wish our second French side through to the semis all the best against Bayern. Meantime, Europa League. We preview Sunday's Cologne Wars as Seville take on Manchester United and from Lyon to the Lyonesses, we hear all about England's new manager. It's the Tony Football Show Summer Special in association with Paddy Power. Always nice to hear West London's finest. Sunday, the 16th of August. Listener, hello to you. Garcia's Gunners have just outgunned Guardiola in the Champions League quarterfinals, and we're joined in the aftermath by Rory Smith of the New York Times. Hello, James. Hello to you, Rory. And Daniel Story of the All Seeing Eye. <laughs> Hi, James. Right. Wow. Quite a night on Saturday. Omar Chowdhury says the Champions League is better than the World Cup and it's not even a contest. Duncan Alexander, Farmers League semis, nature is healing. Well, yeah, <laughs> German and French sides making up the final four of the Champions League. This after the final quarterfinal saw Man City beaten by Lyon 3-1 Saturday evening. If you missed it, Leon took a shock lead on the break in the first half. Cornet with a, a wonderful finish. He then, as a wonderful kind of goal-saving block at the end of the first 45 minutes to keep Leon ahead. Second half, KDB makes it 1-1. Leon get a controversial second through their substitute, Moussa Dembele. Was there a foul on Laporte in the build-up? City, though, get the chance to make it 2-2. Raheem Sterling in front of goal. Somehow puts it over the bar. And barely 60 seconds later, what happens? Leon make it 3-1. Dembele again. Wow. Uh, how did this happen? Well, I think the, the easy answer and the answer I suspect that, that will be coming out of Manchester City as we speak is that, as you say, the, the second should have been ruled out for, for what looked a fairly, well, I, I, I guess that an indeliberate foul, but a fairly obvious foul on Imer at Laporte from Dembele. I don't think he meant to do it. I think they're just trying to, they're, they're running paths kind of intersected, unfortunately, but it's still a foul. It's, it's always given as a foul, that, especially if it's a defender or an attacker. I'm sure the city will say, look, if we'd had the if VAR had kind of overruled that overruled that goal, if Sterling had had finished, which nine times out of ten this season he he has, it's two one, and in, and we're going through. But I think that doesn't quite explain quite how Manchester City, which is the one of the richest teams in the world, if not the richest team in the world, with this kind of unparalleled collection of talent and the best manager of his generation, managed to be a goal down against the seventh best team in France after 70 right. minutes. Well, that, that's that's the mystery, isn't it? Lyon, seventh best team in France. Admittedly, seventh based on an algorithm, yeah. uh, topically enough, because they never finished their season. But 
as much as it's about City, it's even more about Leon. What a performance uh, for the, the second game in a row after that long layoff. Uh, what an attitude from their manager. And if if you're concerned about the antics of super-powered, sovereign wealth-funded teams, then a club like Leon, who are kind of doing it the right way, are probably quite a welcome sight in the semi-finals. Yeah, I mean, it's the the third and fourth seeds from from the weakest Champions League group on, on paper that had uh, Zenit and... Benfica is the top two seeds with Leon and, and Leipzig three and four. And um, yeah, it's no fluke because I know they they lost the second leg against Juventus, but nobody expected them to go through that tie. Nobody expected them to beat City over over one game. It undoubtedly helped them to play over one than two. I've, I've, I don't think that's in question, but they, they played brilliantly. You know, they, they shut down First, they got the mark of respect from Guardiola, who matched up the formations. I think that was probably an error, although it's a, a thin line with Guardiola because when he gets it wrong, we say it's a, he's overthinking it. When he gets it right, it's just thinking it. Um, but after that, they defended really doggedly, and and I was actually I was worried for them after sixty minutes because it looked like they were dropping deeper and deeper and deeper and didn't really have the outlet. But Garcia's changes were were pretty brave, bringing off. After Pi, for example, and and bringing on players who he thought could offer more on the counter, and, and that's exactly what they did. It was interesting in the in the build up to the equaliser. Obviously, it's a great move down down City's left and a great run from De Bruyne, a lovely finish. But Depay lost the ball around the centre circle, and he clearly I forget who the defender was, but he'd kind of been leaning into them to try and draw the foul, and it didn't work. And you could just see he didn't have the energy really to go and to go and get back into position, go and start the press again. And it was I was the same as Daniel. I kind of thought. That their legs are going to go here. The City do ask so many questions of you. They keep moving the ball. But the goals seem to kind of spark Leon back into life. There were a couple of times before before they, were, they went back ahead, before Dembele scored, where they did almost catch City on the counter-attack. They, they looked for kind of the, the big diagonal switch, which is everyone's favourite tactic these days. And and it just looked like they'd maybe woken up a little bit and they thought, they'd maybe I don't know, maybe they realised they, they actually had to ask City some questions or they, they were just going to get pummeled for, for 25 minutes and they would concede. So I think, they, yeah, the huge credit for their performance. The one who stood out to me was, was Hussam Awar, who, who has too many vowels in his surname for me to be comfortable pronouncing it, but was, was just dogged and tenacious, but technically brilliant, used the ball really well. Kakaray's got a lot of attention because he's, He's kind of the hot new thing at Leon, but Auer just looks like a, a really sort of top-class midfielder. Man of the hour, uh, as I like to call him. On the subject of Memphis Depay, because it should be remembered that he he wasn't even meant to be back playing this season because he's doing his ACL. It's part of what has been a, a pretty remarkable backstory, which we touched on when we were previewing this game yesterday, the fact that they'd had disruption, Silvino, a pretty disastrous start for him as manager, Rudy Garcia then coming in back in October, and so unpopular with the Leon fans that uh, there were practically riots there at the Groupama uh, Stadium, and, and, and yet here he is taking them into the, the semi-finals. Let's get a quick perspective now on Leon's achievement and the fact that there are two league sides in the semi-finals of the Champions League from Julian Laurent. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, take out a 30-day trial to see their unrivaled coverage of each and every Premier League club by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Hello, Jules. Hello, guys. Ah, there he is. Wow. Jules, can you believe it? They did it again. I can't believe it. I can't believe it that they did it again. I can't believe the way they did it as well. I can't believe... They got so much help in a way from Pep Guardiola and, and from Raheem Sterling and from Edison. But we said all along for them to go through, they had 
they almost had to play the perfect game, which I think they they almost did. They took really the only what two chances and three goals that they had. They needed a bit of luck from the referee. I still think that second goal should not should not have stood, and and also benefited from an off day, kind of an off day from Pep and from City, and also they got that. And I think all that that was the only way they could do it, and and everything just. All the planets really aligned tonight for Lyon and for Rudy Garcia and credit to them. They they believed they were disciplined once again and well drilled and well organized. They 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 fought hard in midfield. Those three kids, let's not forget Kakre twenty, Bruno Guimaraes twenty-two, and Awa twenty-two. I thought played so well considering the circumstances. And and then to see Moussa Dembele, who had not scored a single goal in the Champions League this season, just nothing in eight games to come on and score two goals in the way he did. What a time to do it. What a time to do it. It's remarkable that it's Leon that's gone through to the semi-final, but kind of in muscle memory terms, it's even more astounding that it's Rudy Garcia who's, who's powered them in there because this was the guy who'd, who'd really struggled in so many uh, of his key appointments uh, after his earlier success. To the extent that, as we mentioned, the, the Leon fans almost rioted when he was appointed uh, to the job with their club uh, back in October. Uh, Will Hughes saying, how, how do the ultras perceive Garcia now? Well, that obviously, as you can imagine, that has changed quite a lot. Not, not too dramatically, because let's not forget that Garcia only took them to to seventh in the league, which is not which is not good enough. Even if he took them in October when they had had that the bad start, as we said, under Silvino. Uh, yet, they still expected better. Uh, but that run in the Champions League, as unexpected as it was, is still remarkable. And I think just for that, Garcia, whether, again, you know, we are fan or not, he, he certainly has flaws in his management. But he has found a way of creating that incredible team spirit, really, that has made this team going that far because it's more, I think, down to that togetherness and the, the discipline that they have with the leaders being proper leaders. And we, we saw Marcelo today. Marcelo is not a very good football player, not at all. But in that position and with, with the spirit and the aggression that he shows and that leadership, and he takes no nonsense from anyone. And you saw a few arguments tonight between him and some of the City players. And he will go to the war for you. And I think when you have that kind of character in your team... Then, then you're onto something good, and I think Garcia, the main, the, the main credit that he deserves is that he managed to create that kind of team. Jules, hello, my friend. How you doing? Good, and you? It's good to hear your voice. I'm all right. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to hear your voice. Um, assuming Leandro out now in the semi-finals, does it make any difference to kind of their model? Does the only way that they can really try and close the gap even a little bit on PSG is to kind of make more money without having to sell like Awa or Kakare or whoever or Dembélé? Will the money they get from the Champions League be, enable them to sort of try and hold on to those players for that extra year longer where they could start to close the gap domestically? They certainly hope so. The only the only big issue and the, the shame really for them is that there's no European competition at all next season, not even the Europa League. I think if they had at least the Europa League, it would be easier to say to Kakre, well, I think we stay, but to Awar and, and Memphis, especially they're the two that, I think with Moussa Dembele, the, the three that... I think could leave this summer it would be easier for them to say listen we've made all that money we're going to strengthen the squad we're going to go for it and and if we need to keep you for that another year and then and then next year when when clubs have, have more money again because the pandemic will be behind everybody and that kind of stuff then you you could go but there's no there's nothing to play for really from for Awa and, and Memphis and I don't think those kind of players can afford really not to ha- not to be in Europe 
for a whole season. So it's a hard task, but you're right. All that money means that they can strengthen the squad even more than they, they thought first. Uh, and then maybe you can convince at least one of those three, one of Awad, Dembele or Memphis to say, listen, you can lead this team forward next year. We will have only the league to play for, which means one game a week when PSG will play in Europe and and Marseille will play in Europe as well. And, and then we can have a proper go at winning the title, regaining, re-winning the title again and be proper contenders with PSG. But I don't know if you if you are and, and you've reached the semi-final or the final of the Champions League or you win it, I don't know, with Lyon. Maybe this is the perfect ending really for your career. You've been at the club 11 years. You know, you joined when you were 11, you're 22 now. This is it. I don't think you can go higher than the semi-final of the Champions League with Lyon. And if Juventus come, if City comes, I think it'd be very hard for Awa not to say yes. So it's a tricky one, but I, I see where you're coming from. And I, and, and I think Lyon will certainly try as hard as they can to keep all their best players and to add some more good players to, 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 to try to compete properly for the title next season. They, they might be in Europe next year, Jules. Yes, of course they might. But I mean, if they pull this one out, I mean, this is the this will be the greatest ever achievement in football. All countries, all leagues, all competitions, put all together. Do you know what I mean? This is already it's first time ever that France have two clubs in the semi final. Uh, PSG had to wait twenty five years, Lyon ten years, and now they're they're there together. So it's pretty special already. But if they were both in the final and then Lyon to win it, it would be even more incredible. Mm. Jules, we'll be hearing more from you, no doubt, as these finals (laughs) continue. Many thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you, guys. Take care. All right, nice one there from Jules. City, then. As Kevin De Bruyne said, post-game, different year, same stuff. Uh, This is the third season in a row that they've gone out in the quarterfinals. Rory, you mentioned some of the complaints, some of the issues they have with the you know the way that luck didn't go their way but there's a lot of responsibility for certain people in the city structure yeah i just i don't, I don't really buy it to be honest i, I, oh. I get why city's fans and why Guardiola and the players will be will be annoyed by the var decision like that that that's completely that's completely legitimate and and it makes sense and i think there's there's a bigger discussion a broader discussion to be had about how we use var and kind of whether it's been sufficiently well explained to the fans almost and all these issues that we've, we've discussed sort of ad nauseam for the last last year or two. But I, I just think that if you, if you are a project of the scale of Manchester City and you are presented with the quarterfinal against, James, you're quite right, Lyon aren't the seventh best team in France. They're probably the second or third best team in France. They're just having a poor season. It's still Manchester City. It's still possibly the most expensive team ever built. It's still Pep Guardiola, the best coach of his generation, brought in just to win the Champions League. That is the that is the apex. That's what they're aiming for. It's not enough to say, look, if we got the if we got a decision in the, in the what the seventy ninth minute of a quarter final against the, against Leon, then we'd be through. It's all because of that. I think you I think Guardiola has to take responsibility. Daniel mentioned the fact that he matched up the tactics. This isn't really meant. This is from someone who is an admirer of Guardiola. But there is no other coach in the world who, when he loses a game, is told it's because he's too clever. No other coach in the world who overthinks things. It's only Guardiola, and it's it it, it just doesn't really wash. He 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 got his system wrong, and we just mm. because he's a genius doesn't mean we 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 can't say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't have a huge issue with with matching up the formations necessarily. You know, they they struggled against Leon in the past. They've never beaten them. Um, and they kind of caught them on the break in those in those games, and Corne in particular did that. I think what disappointed me most, or what I thought was most bizarre, was picking both Rodri and Fernandinho in central midfield against a team who 
I think we probably expected to to sit deep as the, exactly as they did. I, I, they they seemed to miss that lock picker and they waited till the I think the eighty fourth minute to bring on David Silva. They didn't bring on Bernardo Silva. It just felt a little bit a plan A with no plan B, which is a remarkable thing to say for. I know Guardiola has a very staunch philosophy of of my way or the highway, but one thing we recognise about him is that he's very quick to see problems sometimes of his own making and, and is not afraid to make changes to fix them. And it, it seemed from 20, 30 minutes into the game that he'd got the pattern wrong, that Leon were going to sit deeper than perhaps he thought and were not going to look to counter. And and then when he did finally change things, it was by trying to push things more and more. And, and then they did get caught on the counter. It just seemed a very odd plan. Mm. Anton Tului puts it like this Pep Guardiola is that one contestant that's excellent in the first few weeks of Bake Off but then tries too hard in the quarterfinal uses an elaborate Austrian cake technique he's never tried before and gets sent home after serving a burnt turd of a sponge it's a fair summary of tonight's events in Lisbon I, mean, I, th- I think I think all of our minds went to, to what is the parallel on Bake Off when we watch the game I, it, it's, it's too much to kind of write Guardiola off and say that you know that he's I don't think it's, it's evidence of some fundamental flaw in his, in his character, but it, this isn't now a one-off. You know, he's he's been at City for for four seasons, and they haven't made a semi-final. That's that ultimately, and again, as an admirer of Guardiola, that's not good enough. That's not what he's been brought in to do. And obviously, you know, they've they've redefined English football. They've changed the way we play. They've they've had two probably the two best seasons ever. But as with all of the super clubs, where Guardiola is judged is is in the Champions League, ultimately. And I do think there have to be questions asked of why this keeps happening now. And it's not it's not enough to, to say, well, VAR did this and VAR did that. And we, we're kind of powerless because City, City ultimately have agency. They have agency over all this stuff. And it's interesting that it does keep happening. It's, I, I don't have an explanation for it, but quite why he didn't feel empowered with that team to go out and play Bernardo and play Foden against Leon really baffles me. The same team, for example, that had just beaten Real Madrid home and away. And had those results been the other way around, had they, for example, beaten Leon in the last 16 and then gone out to Real Madrid, then maybe it would have been okay. But yeah, that's the charge against him. Equally, had Raheem Sterling put that chance away, 2-2 and an entirely different game. Gabriel Jesus vers Sterling. Oh, il la met au-dessus. Oh, le miracle. Le miracle lyonnais. Merci, Raheem Sterling. Thematically, it was everything bad about City in a period of about 35 minutes, and that they, you know, the charge of them overthinking it will not go away. Um, the VAR is something that City are uh, have been hurt by before. And. And the individual mistakes at both ends of the pitch, because I didn't think Laporte played particularly well. To say he was picked alongside Eric Garcia, who, you know, in the first five minutes of commentary, rightly so, people were pointing out, this is a heck of a night for Eric Garcia. And I think he was better than Laporte on the night. Um, And within a minute, Sterling misses that chance that he he does have in his locker. He really does. I don't know if it's a concentration thing. I don't know if it's a confidence thing. I don't know if it's a technique thing, although that seems to normally seems to be a problem from shooting from distance rather than shooting from two yards out. Um, or what, I don't know. But then a minute later, Edison spills the ball and it won't stand out as much, but that's almost as big of a mistake. It was such a soft shot at Edison and the parry straight out to Dembele's feet. It was was pitiful, quite frankly. And they have to, they seem to have this thing where one mistake breeds another or one conceded goal brings another very quickly. They did it in the league a lot this season and that kind of has to be a psychological thing. Hmm. Does that psychological thing 
stem in any way or is it exacerbated by a manager who changes their formation, changes their duties within a game uh, and as such essentially says to them, we need to react to the other team. We can't, as you were saying, Rory, impose ourselves. I, I don't know if that's something that, that kind of would undermine the confidence. The thing that, that's always been, that people have said to me before, people with, who know much more about football than I do, is that with this kind of tendency towards the kind of the ultimate micromanagers, so, so Guardiola being the, the kind of king of them, is that it, it removes the player's ability to an extent to interpret the action on the pitch themselves, that they are constantly looking towards the touchline for instructions. And there are times where that's not particularly constructive. So in, when, when Guardiola and Klopp does it as well, although I don't, think, I don't think he micromanages quite as much, you know, when they're in training and they're, they're working on those kind of those, those movement patterns up front to you know, it looks when when Salamani and Firmino are, are interchanging the ball, it looks like it's this wonderful kind of instantaneous, aren't we? Aren't we? You know, aren't we kind of in tune with each other? But it's not. They've trained it a million times for three, four years. That's why. That's how they can do it. And it's the same with City. That it works on that level and makes them. It brings them to this incredible pitch of excellence. But when things go against them, those teams tend to look a lot more to the sideline and say, "All right, what what do we do now?" And there's a shortage of just one player that's saying, well, actually, I think this might work. I'll try this. And I, I wonder if at times that's what City lack. They've got this, this incredible stat that I'm hoping Daniel might know because I can't remember it. That when they're 1-0 down at half time, they never win. Yeah, I think it's back to 95 in the Premier games. League, isn't it? Yeah, in the, yeah, that's in the Premier League, yeah. Uh, but equally, I mean, that spans the Guardiola era, obviously, and as well as all the other glorious eras of... Um, Frank Clark, presumably. It kind of suggests that when things aren't going their way, City don't quite have the way of finding the answers. And normally that's not a problem, because they're such a brilliant team that things are always going their way. But on the rare occasions, occasions that they're not, they struggle. And that's obviously going to happen more when you're playing better teams in Europe. There is, I mean, there's a, there's a cliche that doesn't just apply to, to sport, obviously, but that you kind of learn about yourself in times of adversity and what we have learned about City you know the last 12 matches they've they've conceded the first goal they've won two of them and lost nine now and that suggests that they, they aren't learning an awful lot in adversity you know they have a goal difference of, of 67 in the Premier League and they scored 102 goals but you don't learn really anything by beating Norwich 5-0 at home and beating Newcastle 4 or 5 you learn something when the chips are down and the the longevity of that issue and the lack of ability of Guardiola to solve it is 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 damning upon him, albeit with the same caveat Rory makes in that I'm a huge fan of him and I think he's a, a an outstanding coach. But you know it's not a secret anymore. Every team knows that. Every team will will know it even more now that if you if you unnerve City early on and get the first goal, you can kind of get in their heads a bit. Well, one of the losers Saturday night was of course narrative with uh, no longer the chance for Pep to take on his former side Bayern Munich in the semi-final. What, what do you guys think about Leon's prospects in that game? I don't think... I, I, I mean, it sounds incredibly damning after they've just beaten Manchester City, but having, as I'm sure we all did, watch Bayern Munich dismantle Barcelona from the top of the club down within a period of 40 first-half minutes, I, I don't give anyone a chance against Bayern. We're clipping that that quote up even as we speak, <laughs> Rory. <laughs> I think. Well, I think. I, I know. I, I mean, basically, I agree. With, I agree with Daniel. But I think. Well, the two things that are relevant. One is the is the the fact that there's two German, two French teams suggest that that the teams who've had a break have come into the Champions League in, in slightly better nick than the teams who haven't had a break. Um, but also, I, it sounds really simplistic. But I, I, 
I think that if you're Leon, they physically I thought they really got out Manchester City. They didn't they they got into them, they sort of left a bit on them when when necessary. They've got some some really good kind of athletic players. I wonder whether they, they might find that doggedness against Bayern again. It's not like they've got loads of miles in their legs. They're not going to be knackered. They, they, should, they should be able to, to kind of pick up that work rate. I think Bayern will win. I'd be slightly surprised and a little bit disappointed if they scored eight goals again. <laughs> Although, you know. Uh, that game is coming up on Wednesday. Before that, it's RB Leipzig up against Paris Saint-Germain. As you'll have spotted, two French sides are two German ones. But three of the four semi-finalists will have German managers and of course Jurgen Klopp's not one of them so remarkable stuff also uh, Archie in touch with a very neat line of the eight managers who are through to the Champions League and Europa League semi-finals only one of them has actually managed in a European semi-final before uh, Conte is it Daniel's correct it is Antonio Conte on the, the, the German coaches thing that you mentioned, James, a, a plug on very much on someone else's behalf, but there's a, a fabulous book by a guy called Jonathan Harding called uh, Mensch, um, which is a, a, an incredibly deep but still very interesting dive on kind of the journey of German coaching. And this, well, it, it was clearly written before three German coaches were in the Champions League semi-finals, but he will be entirely vindicated by that fact because it... To say it goes the the in the opposite direction from other European countries who whose clubs might appoint former players as priority it is you know is to undersell it. It's a very fascinating look at, at where the you know the fact that this is basically no fluke that this is entirely by design. Well, the Europa League semi-finals get underway later today, listener. First of them sees Man United taking on Sevilla in Cologne. We'll have our say on that next. Everyone remembers that time you've had that peach of an accumulator looking good only for... Oh, and the keeper's let it slip through his legs in the 94th minute. Or the right back has to pull on the gloves and face a penalty. Or Man United have again conceded a late equaliser. But with Paddy Power's Acker Cracker, you get a free bet if one leg of your fourfold plus Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Minimum odds of 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeCumbleAware.org. This is the Totally Summer Special by the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Man United and Sevilla, we've been here before and it didn't end well for United. 2018 in the Champions League last 16, Sevilla knocking Mourinho's United out with a 2-0 win at Old Trafford. Well, two years on and with United now a modern swashbuckling side, albeit one that was so pooped they couldn't get past Copenhagen in 90 minutes. The question is, could Sevilla do it again? Joining us now on the line to talk Sevilla, Colin Miller. Colin, one Spanish side left in European competition. Yeah, it's been a it's been a really, really, really tough week for Spanish sides. Obviously, uh, it all sort of began with Madrid's exit at City, and then Atletico Madrid, who were definitely favourites um, against RB Leipzig, and they fell a bit short there, and the disaster for Barcelona. On, on Friday. So yeah, Sevilla the only side left. And again, it wouldn't be accurate to say that Sevilla are the best team in Spain. But I think in terms of coping with European competition, the, the style of play and the intensity 
to be a play with is something that is probably absent, um, certainly with Barcelona and probably with Atletico and Madrid as well. Teams who really struggled to play against opposition with high press. They're not used to that in La Liga. You know, you're used to a more sort of technical style of play whereby maybe the tempo's a little bit slower and you're not, you're not pressed quite that high up. But Sevilla are a little bit different. And I think that's why they, they really dealt with Roma and Wolves so well. And they're a team who are built to, to thrive in this in this competition. And obviously coming up against Manchester United, for me, these are the two teams, the two best teams left in the Europa League. So it's going to be really intriguing to see how it plays out. What would constitute an upset, do you think? I think United probably have a higher ceiling of performance. I think they, they're a team who've, in their sort of front five or six players, have got more ability uh, and, and more match winners than Sevilla do. But Sevilla are very consistent. And, you know, we saw against uh, Wolves earlier this week that, you know, a, a team who just always turns up and they will always give you a 7 or 8 out of 10 performance. That, that's their level. And I think that's, that's what you're going to get against United too. I think this game is going to be decided in terms of how well United front five click and probably something that they struggled a little bit with against Copenhagen. And I think that, you know, we've seen it with United, we've seen it with a couple of other teams as well that they're a little bit more fatigued. Obviously, it's been a very demanding couple of months for all footballers. But Sevilla's conditioning has looked really impressive to me. Um, and I think that could potentially be decisive in this game. So it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that balance plays out. Are you surprised to see them back in the semifinals? Yes and no. Uh, I think earlier this season, there was a really pivotal moment uh, against uh, Kluge, the Romanian side, in the round of 32. And the first leg, it ended 1-1 in Romania, and they, they took it back to Seville. The game was 0-0, and with three minutes to go, Kluge seemed to have found a winning goal. Um, it was a long-range strike that went through the goalkeeper's hands. There was a sort of stunned silence just fell across the stadium. You know, Sevilla... They, they weren't informed. They'd only won about one in the last five or six games going into that match. And had they have gone out of Europe, there was talk that Lopetegui could have been sacked. And at the end of that match, the, the goal had been ruled out. Um, the VAR had overturned it for a handball in the build-up. Sevilla fans were really not happy with the level of performance. They were booed off. And there was a TV crew outside the ground that were speaking to supporters. You know, like, and they're saying, listen, with Lopetegui in charge, we are never going to win anything. This can't continue, this style of play. He was seen as a very sort of conservative, cautious manager. And, you know, they had seemed to have gone away with one. You know, they'd really got that moment of luck. But then the lockdown came and they have been absolutely superb since then, not losing a game. And not only that, but when you look at their last eight games, they've won seven of them. And they've beaten some pretty good opposition in that time too. So they've really clicked in an attacking sense as well. And I think it's just that that, that time, Lopetegui, he needed, he needed a full preseason behind him. But I think he and Sevilla probably benefited more than any other club from that three-month lockdown. And they've just come out in such better shape, such better positional sense too. It's, it, they're a really coherent team and they're going to be pretty hard to stop. And one last question. How much will Sevilla be enjoying now flying the flag for Spanish hopes? Yeah, it's it's a little bit unusual and obviously Barcelona and Madrid have dominated Champions League football for the past decade or so and Atletico Madrid too. But I think when you look at all three of those teams and I think there's there's a lack of freshness about them when you look at this, the spine of Barcelona, Piquet, Busquets, Messi and Suarez, you know, you kind of think they have been so successful for so long and there's a similar pattern with Madrid, but you kind of look at both those teams now and you think they really need to renovate and rejuvenate their squads. And the same is true of Atletico Madrid in terms of that's what happened last summer when there was a host of really experienced players left the club, essentially the spine of their team. And they had to completely change and they weren't used to that under Diego Simeone. They'd had a very settled team for a number of years, but they had these mass changes too. 
where Sevilla are different is that Sevilla have been doing that every year anyway because Sevilla are a club who've had to continually sell their star players. So their their recruitment system every single season has been has been very strong. That's been a constant focus for the club. So in a, in a way, that's that's almost benefited them in this sense because they can go season season to season with a different set of players with a different coach in place. But this the, the setup of the club is strong enough to withhold that. Whereas with the other top Spanish clubs, it's a little bit different. So yeah, they're going to be enjoying this. And I think that if they were to win a Europa League title, it, it, they are one of these clubs that winning trophies means more than a really high league finish. They want medals. They want. They have this relentless drive and this faith that they, you know, that they can succeed in these competitions and they can beat these clubs. And Julian Lopetegui said Manchester United are the biggest club in the world. He wants to make them the underdog. He wants to get put them against the world and to beat them. And I think that mentality is going to be very evident again on Sunday evening. Colin Miller there, author, of course, of the definitive guide to Sevillano football, the frying pan of Spain. Wow. Are you looking forward to this one, guys? Yeah, I think that'll be really interesting. It's, it's severe, obviously... As Tonin says, have got this kind of incredible defensive record, and Lopetegui is a really un-Spanish coach. He's well, that's not that's not fair. He's a very Basque coach, Lopetegui. It's that very kind of you know well-drilled, disciplined, organised sort of football, um, typical of a former goalkeeper. And that, to an extent, is kind of what United like because Sevilla will have the ball. They're they're, they're not the quickest team in the world, I don't think. And you know, United got that, that pace on the break, and that, I think United will go into it thinking that they can get at them. But I don't know. I think I think Sevilla. I don't really buy into this idea that because Sevilla have won the the Europa League a lot in the past, that this group of players, and obviously Sevilla have this incredible churn of players, it's not really relevant to this group of players. They they haven't done it. They're not experienced in winning the Europa League altogether. So. Where do you stand on homeopathy, Rory? I mean, this is you know it's late at night, James. This is when all the strong opinions come out. Uh, I think whatever people like is important. Okay, whatever works for you. So I think United will will look at it and think that perhaps the way that Sevilla play might help because of the pace of Rashford and, and Greenwood and Martial, and because of the inventiveness of Fernandez and Pogba. But I do think Sevilla have a kind of an organisation, a discipline that will pose problems for Manchester United. I, th- I think they're still better when there's lots of space, the game's a little bit fractured, a little bit broken, and they can kind of swarm and swashbuckle, as you say. I, Sevilla do not let anyone buckle any swashes. Right. It takes a lot of energy to play Sevilla as well, doesn't it? I mean, Wolves struggle with that. And United did not look full of beans against Copenhagen. They will have had an extra day's rest compared to their Andalusian opponents. But Daniel... Yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the big question. I think the other the kind of slightly more underlying question is is how they deal with with Sevilla's right flank because if we assume that Marcus Rashford is going to stay pretty high up the pitch, and we assume if if Matic is the only you know out and out defensive midfielder, then he's going to have to look after Eva Benega, and then that leaves poor Brandon Williams with with Luke Shaw out to deal with probably Suso and the overlapping Navas, who is. You know, not not what he was, but has completely reinvented his game to be this you know attacking fullback rather than winger. And if I think if Benega can get away from Matic, or if someone else can take away Matic for a bit, and then they can almost have three players on Williams. If they exploit that, then that's big problems for United. Um, but other than that, player for player, United should go through with some ease. But as you say, it's that it's that at those energy levels because they looked. They didn't just look flat against Copenhagen. They looked exhausted. They looked like even 10-yard passes were taking it out of them. There was that stage, which I think we talked about in the pub before, where Rashford kind of ran after a ball and just realised his legs couldn't get there. 
So that's a clearly a huge issue. And, and Sevilla will look to make it as battling as possible in midfield to kind of drain them with 20 minutes to go and then maybe look to push forward. It's a big test of, of whether that midfield of Podbramatic and Fernandez works in big games, I think, because they look great in that run of games in the Premier League where they were playing kind of bottom 12 teams and they could kind of stroke the ball around and, and be clever and crafty and, and inventive. The question mark was of that midfield is always going to be, can you play it against a top-class side? And Sevilla aren't absolute top-class, but they're pretty good. And it's a, it's a chance to see, I guess, for Solskjaer to see whether it's that midfield has the right balance against really high-quality opponents. Hmm. Well, coming up at 8 o'clock UK time, Sunday evening. Still to come in this uh, Totally Football Show summer special, we're going to be hearing about why England's uh, fans got so excited about the appointment of the Lionesses' new manager uh, this week. First of all, though, here's Lee Price with odds. Thank you and hello, listener. This is a biggie. The most successful club in Europa League history. Oh, and Man United. Uh, this is very tightly priced, so much so that it's actually dropped United from being favourites to win the competition with Inter leapfrogging them. Sevilla priced at 15 to 8 to win this match, United are 6 to 4, while the draw after 90 minutes is 21 to 10. Now, normally I'd be talking about goal scorers, especially of the United front line, but Sevilla haven't conceded a goal in more than five hours of Europa League action, while United, of course, couldn't score in normal time against Copenhagen. So doing my really good maths, 2 plus 2 equals 5, that kind of makes the nil-nil after 90 minutes quite interesting at 7-1. to one. Our traders, meanwhile, make one all the most likely scoreline at 5-1. to one. You can get the same price that either team wins in extra time, or it's 4-1, to one, the game's decided on penalties. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, much excitement among England fans on Friday at the news that Serena Vigman will be taking over the Lionesses. Only not just yet. The Netherlands coach, who will be England women's first foreign manager, is down to actually take up the uh, position in September 2021 with Phil Neville remaining till July of next year and then a kind of grey area, a DMZ, if you will, in between. What does it all mean? How will it all work? Katie Wyatt of The Telegraph joins us now. Katie, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, England fans are very, very excited at this news. They are, yeah. I think it, it was always a difficult one because I think in the end it came down to Jill Ellis, who was the coach of the USA, the two-time World Cup winning former coach of the US, and and then um, Serena Vigman, who um, lost out to Jill Ellis at the uh, World Cup last summer when the Netherlands finished second, but has really transformed the culture of women's football over there and the landscape of women's football over there and taken a team that were very unfancied and not very well known in the country and then brought them to really, really well recognised and well regarded on the world stage and really um, galvanised the whole fan base and the interest in women's football over in the Netherlands. So you can see from the way that she manages the team and how tactical and technical she can be um, when the, the team are particularly playing to their strengths um, that she's a really exciting coach to watch but then also one that, unlike Phil Neville who didn't have any prior managerial experience or know all the ins and outs of the women's games who really appreciates the nuances of managing women's football and who understands um, what it's like to be a manager at the elite level. Okay, it's a little bit strange though because Phil will be hanging on 
until his contract runs out in July 2020. And Serena Wiegmann won't come in until, well, she's not scheduled to be joining until September after the Olympics. So with that uh, recent run under Phil Neville, the uh, the defeat in the She Believes Cup, the, the losing seven of his last 11 games, uh, his reputation the kind of perception of the job that he's done isn't it hasn't been that high of late. Uh, do you think that history is being a bit unfair on Phil? Does he deserve a bit of thanks for what he did in the first place, or is it good to get rid? Um, I think it's probably the right time to part ways. I think the problem that Neville had was that the circumstances that he was appointed in, and the tweets that came back up, and the lack of experience that he's had in the women's game, and indeed as a manager at all. I think he'd done one first team game at Salford. I think the problem that he was coming up against all the time was that people were very angered and insulted that someone without that experience in the women's game had got the job. I think that there were certainly games that you could look back on and say that they were really exceptional and you saw the kind of fruits of Neville's labour come to fruition and everything really work and these lightning in a bottle moments where they looked really, really good. So I think particularly the Norway game in the World Cup, which I think they won 4-1 and Lucy Bronze was exceptional in that game and they just were a really well-coached, well-organised, confident team and you saw how they'd really come on leaps and bounds under Neville but then there were other times when they just looked so lost or they just had the same sort of failings defensively or the way that they were building um, out from the back or the way that they were connecting um, attackers and midfielders. It just You would see these same issues recurring and recurring and recurring and particularly when they got into that bad slump, you were looking at Neville and thinking, well... You've never had to manage a team out of a bad slump. You've never had to manage a team or coach a team that are going through this crisis of confidence. You came from a team that was fractured because they'd lost um, a manager that, by all accounts, was very well liked in Mark Sampson. And you had to sort of pick them up from that. But you've never had one where they've had this psychological slump of losing so many games on the bounce. Like you will have inevitably, with that in mind, I think going for someone who has the depths of experience that um, Serena has is a really, really promising move. Apart from not being Phil Neville, what do you think uh, she brings to the job? What, how will England change under her watch? Um, I think it depends on what they want to do and what they want to be because I think part of Neville's remit when he came in was they'd been a very pragmatic and practical team under Mark Sampson where they won but not necessarily been the prettiest team to watch. And then when Neville came in, it became a lot prettier. They got the ball on the floor, they moved the ball a lot quicker, they played it out from the back. But he was very kind of staunch in those principles and very reluctant to compromise. So, yes, they looked a lot better and played more attractive football than they did under Sampson. And certainly players like Lucy Bronze, for instance, have kind of been on a development arc and you can see they've become better players, albeit I don't know how much credit he needs for that and how much of that resides with the people at Leon. But I think it's trying to find a manager who can marry that attractive playing style and their principles with also one that can give them silverware on the next stage and really take them on to meddling consistently at major tournaments and becoming the best team in the world because I think that their goal for a long time since that World Cup and even before has been to kind of knock the US off their perch as it were and so I think finding a manager that can do that while doing it in an attractive way is um, probably what her her kind of aim is going to be and I think the potential problem with that is that I was speaking to a few Dutch journalists about this and they were saying that the World Cup last summer and because the Netherlands had become so well known after they won the Euros and she had to kind of compromise on her style and be a little bit more pragmatic in order to sort of counter teams that were countering them and to find new ways to solve problems that were that came with being a very well-known team that people have almost worked out to a certain extent. So I think it's going to be a challenge for her and probably the 
um, aim for the team in the next year, two years, three years to become a team that can be stylish and sophisticated and very nice to watch, but also that are consistently winning um, at major tournaments. Katie White there of The Telegraph. Well, exciting times that will begin in uh, 13 months' time. Uh, Daniel, it's a, it's a strange situation. Were you buzzing with this one? Well, I think it's a very good appointment. Um, I mean, I, I think the, their theory is that, that Jill Ellis is a manager who keeps the team one of, if not the best team, and the USA was certainly the best team in the world, keeps them at the top. Um, by refreshing things and by using the you know the established pros, I think the their hope is that Vigman is is the coach that takes them up to that USA level, which in her defence is she almost did with Netherlands, who on paper and financially should have a worse team than England, but won the Euros, got the World Cup final, and it, it's the best CV out there after Jill Ellis, I think, is how they look at it, and. Um, for all that Neville did do well early in his job, he, he didn't have the best CV for that job at the time of his appointment. I think Figman does have that. The thing with Ellis that's interesting is that she, she was quite heavily criticised by quite a lot of the US players. And it was really interesting. I was in the, in the mid zone after the, after the final last year. And normally in that situation, when players sort of talk about, that, about everyone, they'll say, you know, this is, this is a win for, for the, the coaching staff and for the kind of ancillary staff and the nutritionists and the sports scientists and everybody. You know, it's a great team effort. N- not one of them actually kind of said, you know, Jill Ellis has done a really good job. And there was a real sense among the American players of, of we've won this despite her, not because of her. And I don't know enough about the kind of internal politics of US soccer to say whether that's true or not. But I wonder whether the, the FA maybe looked at the fact that that she'd been criticised by the absolute best team in the world, this kind of this incredible dynasty of not being up to their standard, and thought, well, well, we can't we can't hire her then. That counts against her. In the same way as like when a manager fails at Manchester United, it's assumed that like West Ham shouldn't appoint him because he's not good enough anymore. And and I, I do wonder whether Ellis maybe should have should have been a bit more of a strong contender but Viedman's work with Holland was really impressive um, and as, as Dan says I, I, I guess she's got the right kind of profile she, she's a coming force and England want to be a coming force so maybe they feel that it dovetails more nicely it, it is really strange to leave it a year before bringing her in especially with the Olympics in the way right. and it kind of confuses the Team GB thing it's, that's a really weird dynamic well she's tied in with the Netherlands till the end of the Olympics it's, it's just for me, kind of weird having Phil Neville still there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's what the situation is at the moment. Maybe it will evolve. However, uh, with that, we come to the end of today's Totally Football Show Summer Special. But don't worry, listener, there'll be another one on the way on Monday morning. Looking back on Man United Sevilla and, of course, throwing forward to Monday night's game, Inter against Shakhtar Donetsk. Many thanks to Jules and Colin Miller and Katie Wyatt. And to Daniel Story and Rory Smith. Story and Rory. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we could never marry. Or solve crimes together. <laughs> that would be brilliant. That would be brilliant. We need that fanfic. Uh, anyway, that's for another day. But now, from all of us here, listener, thanks for being with us. And we'll catch up with you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. 
Marini's Media.